Hi, this is Dr. Jose Saldivar with another episode of the Way to College podcast. The wonderful thing about the podcast is that it has given me an opportunity to reconnect with people throughout my life. And today's guest is a very special guest because she was my boss for two years. I think it was two years, and she can correct me if I'm wrong. But while I was in school, while I was an undergrad, and I often tell my students, you know, I, I was the type of student that I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what it, I didn't have a plan for after college. Um, but she was such a wonderful mentor because she always offered advice. She was just a wonderful boss and I think allowed me to do work that I valued and that I knew I wanted to do later on in life. And so I, I, um, it's just a treat to have her on today. And so Maria, would you mind introducing yourself to, to our listeners? Uh, yes. Hello. My name is Maria Fernandez. Uh, I am uh, here living in San Antonio, where I've lived the past 10 years um, after being born and raised in uh, Southern California in L.A. And um, yes, we met in, in college once I was uh, probably a couple years out of graduate school. And so um, it's wonderful to connect with you and um, join you on this podcast. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, 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 and so, you know, Maria, th- treat this like, um, you know, like we're just having a, a natural conversation. So, um, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Um, Maria, I always ask all of my guests the same question to start. And so I ask him if you had to go back and identify the starting point of your educational journey, what would that point be for you? Ooh, um, I think one of my most vivid memories was third grade. Um, so in third grade, uh, so I grew up in Los Angeles in the LA Unified School District. My parents had, um, immigrated from Mexico and there's a long history of generations going back and forth, but I would consider myself a first, first generation, um, student. And back in the day, uh, I was in a program called ESL, English as a Second Language. So, uh, you know, English language learner and so forth. And so, um, so it was, it was third grade. And I remember in first grade and second grade, I would be in the highest reading group in the mainstream class. Um, I would always get good grades. I'm the oldest of four. Um, And in the mainstream English class and every afternoon or several afternoons, I don't remember in the afternoon, I would get pulled out and I would get pulled out of class for ESL. So there were a few of us students that would get pulled out of class. And I didn't understand because sometimes in the afternoon, some of the funnest things happened in my regular class and there were my friends and I was getting pulled out and I was doing things that I already knew. And so, um, but I knew it was ESL. It was for kids who didn't speak English well, I guess, right? That's, as, that's kind of when a third grade brain I knew. Um, and so I told that teacher, I said, I don't need to be here anymore. I remember telling her, um, and my, my mom is pretty outspoken and, you know, uh, so I kind of, I think I learned that from her. I said, I don't need to be here anymore. I want to go back to my class. And she said, well, the only way that we can, uh, get you out of the class is to test you out, to know that you can be in the class with your peer, with your, you know, with other, stu- with your other students and with your friends. Um, so I went home that day. I don't remember the details of this. My mom kind of fills in some of this is that I went home and I told my mom, you need to talk to this teacher because I need a test out of ESL. So my mom didn't know what the process was. She didn't know that she had to proactively do that. She knew I was doing well in school. And um, so, you know, fast forward and I was able to test out. And so by the time I started fourth grade, I was, you know, back in the mainstream class. And I, I mean, now that I think about it, there's just so many lessons in there. um, Right. But I think for me, was that my parents, you know, they they wanted me to get an education. That's why they came to the U.S., right? They wanted better for me, um, but they didn't know what the school system was like. Um, it was, you know, a third grader who had helped, you know, they took everywhere to help them interpret and translate at all these, you know, public offices and things like that um, to, to let them know um, that, that I was not in the class where I should be. And so I think, you know, later as I think about the rest of my education, I think that was a point where it was so clear to me that, you know, what I, what needed to happen, I had to advocate for myself Hmm. um, because, you know, systems weren't set up to support students like me. So 
Um, I knew that's when, you know, it became clear I was different. It became clear that I could do really well and I still had to prove myself (laughs) in another setting, right? So lots of lessons there. I love that story. I love that story because one, I mean, right, you had to advocate for yourself. It, 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 based on what you shared, it doesn't sound like you had any problems advocating, right? Because you had to, it sounds like you had to do that for your parents, right? Helping them translate and things. Mm-hmm. Um, was there, you know, you said you, you told your mom that you needed to, to test out of this class. Was there any pushback from your parents? Did they say, you know, my, because I, you know, I don't know, my third grade daughter is telling me that I need to go with it. Um, was there any pushback from them or, or were, did they, okay, yes, that, tell us what we need to do and we'll Yeah, do well, you know, the interesting thing is they didn't know there was a process, right? They knew I was doing well in school. And so part of it is I think that they trusted the school, right? They trusted that the school knew how to best support me, that the school knew what I needed, that I was doing well in school. So obviously something was working right at the school. Um, and so, you know, that teacher, I, I think at the end, I remember she was, she was really kind. She was always really positive and affirming to me, you know? And so I think that, um, I, I don't know what ended up happening there that, you know, I kind of had to ask for that, for it to happen. But, you know, when I told my mom, the teacher says you need to come if you want this to happen, then I think she realized, oh, well, if la maestra, <laughs> the la maestra is saying to do this, well, of course yeah. we're going to do that. And so, um, you know, I was able to test out, but I mean, there's so many students like, you know, whose families didn't know the process. My family didn't know the process. So who knows, you know, how long they would have been there or, you know, but, but I think my parents really trusted that the schools knew best. Right. Yeah. Um, and I kept well, saying, I'm, I'm, I know all this stuff already. Why am I still here? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and you bring up a good point, right. The, there, cause there are countless kids that, that maybe, are in a similar situation who feel like they don't, they don't need the class anymore, but don't, you know, don't feel like, or don't know how to advocate for themselves. Um, don't feel empowered to do so. Let me ask you. So growing up in your household, you said you were the oldest, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So obviously with that comes a lot of responsibility. Right. Um, and, and your parents, obviously you said they valued education. So, you know, I, I, would you say that maybe it was just, it was the house, it was your parents, it was everything, all of these factors that kind of gave you the strength, the courage to say, I need, I can speak up for myself? Where do you think that came from? Because I, I don't feel like yeah. that's natural, especially if we think about the countless kids who never speak up for themselves or who don't know how or afraid to, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I... Um I was a very shy kid. I was very much an introvert. So even when I, I share that you. story, <laughs> even when I share that story, it's a, it does surprise me a little bit. Right. Um, but I think early on, I knew it was very clear to me why my parents came here. Like it was very clear that they wanted me to get an education. It was very clear. Um, my father uh, who passed away a few years ago, he, um, he was a gardener. He was a landscaper. My mom was a housekeeper. Um, So they, you know, they didn't have a lot of education in Mexico. And that's why they came here because they wanted that for us. So I think I I knew at a very young age what my job was. You know, my job, they had their job and a very hardworking job. And my job was to do well in school. And so if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a class where I feel like I'm missing out, I miss, I was missing out on other things. I was missing out on content. You know, I mean, I, as a third grader, I probably wasn't thinking it that way, but I I wasn't with my friends. Like, why am I being treated? Uh, Maybe it goes, you know, differently because I'm, you know, and tracking exists, right? So I was in the, I knew, I knew at third grade that I was in the quote, in the highest reading group. So I'm like, so why? because I speak Spanish at home, why am I being taken out for the afternoon and not getting able to? So, you know, part of it, maybe it was a little question of fairness. You know, this is, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair that I'm being pulled out when I'm, just, when I'm doing fine. Um, and so I think, you know, being the oldest, I think, you know, kind of growing up with a strong sense of responsibility. Um, my mom would come home with stories about, you know, things that had happened at work and ways that she had stood up for herself. I mean, 
even to wow. people she worked for. So I think that's, uh, she's a very strong person. And so that, um, you know, I think probably subconsciously that was a lot of, you know, about, but, you know, it was also, I, I want to be with my friends and I wasn't, I didn't understand. I wanted to know why I was, why I wasn't with my friends. And if I was doing so well, why I needed, you know, quote, extra help. Yeah. That's the way that it was positioned, right? I needed extra help and I didn't understand um, why, uh, particularly, you know, yeah. So again, I love your story and I think the story kind of reminds us that, I don't know, sometimes we overlook the fact that I think kids know, right? Kids recognize tracking. They recognize that they're in the highest reading group. They recognize mm -hmm. when opportunities are taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Why, right? Why can't I participate with this? We're with this group. Why am I being pulled out? So I, I, I love that because um, I think sometimes we lose sight of that. We forget that. So I really love that part of your story. So it sounds like one early on, you knew you could advocate for yourself. Moving forward with your education, did you have to do a lot of that? Did you find yourself, okay, I, I've done this before, I can do it again, or did you, did you need to do that? Or were there opportunities kind of, the opportunities were just there for you? What was the rest of your educational experience yeah. like? Well, I think I, I remember third grade because that was such, you know, later now, after I became an educator, I learned about how third grade is such a pivotal point for learning and everything. But, you know, I... You know, once I got to fourth, fifth and elementary school years, there were lots of opportunities. Um, I felt like I, you know, because I excelled in school, um, you know, there were lots of things that I got to do within school. I mean, I, I, I just remember having really good teachers, my my fifth grade teacher, sixth grade in, in elementary school. Um, and it was the kind of the next hurdle after that is because I had been in an ESL program, I had been, never been tested for the gifted and talented program. So there were some other special programs that happened at the school for students who had been tested as gifted and talented and had passed. Um, and so I, I think that happened in second grade and, and earlier. And so because I was pulled out, I never got tested. So, but I don't, I don't know if teachers realize this or, but, um, I knew that there were students who were my friends who were in my class who were gifted, quote, right, were mm -hmm. gifted students. And so they got to do a school newspaper. I wasn't in the gifted program, but I want to do the school newspaper. I don't I don't remember if I ever advocated for that, but I was invited by the teachers to be a part of that. So I, I ended up being the student who wasn't in the gifted program, but ended up doing the kid, things the gifted students did, right? Yeah. Um, and so that was fifth and sixth grade. By the time I got to seventh grade, um, you know, and actually there was one more, one more piece when my sixth, uh, my elementary school was K through six. My sixth grade teacher, um, I think she, I think she realized some of the systemic issues that were going on. She said, you know, when you go to sixth grade, you're going to be, you're going to start to be put in different class, you know, in classes based on how you, well you do, and that's going to set you up for college. So I'm going to write a letter of recommendation to your counselor to say that you should be in an accelerated program. So, um, wow. so I remember this teacher, Ms. Guze, and she wrote that letter. She said, I'm going to send it to the school. And she gave me a copy. So when I go to when I go to middle school and I look at my courses, my courses say advanced, but they don't say honors. And that's another time where I went to the, I, I went to the counselor and I still remember his name. I went to the counselor and I said, well, I got this letter of recommendation from my sixth grade teacher. I should be in the honors classes. He says, no, she said you should be in an accelerated program not in an honors program. So it was kind of in somewhere between regular classes and the honors classes. And it wasn't until uh, seventh grade when I was in a kind of advanced math class, but not pre-algebra, because we also know that once you're in eighth grade, if you're not in algebra, you know, uh, you're not on track to go to college um, at the time. And so, um, so it was seventh grade um, that halfway through the year, um, my seventh grade teacher, Mr. Decatur, I still remember his name. And he, uh, uh, he was a wonderful teacher. And he said, why are you in my class? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, why aren't you in my pre-algebra class? And 
he's like, you know, so I was doing well in that class and I wasn't in pre-algebra. Um, and so long story short, he um, requested to have me tested for the gifted and talented in seventh grade. So I passed, I got tested and the, the counselor still did decide, he said, it's midway through the year. I'm not going to move you to pre-algebra. So this teacher, Mr. Decatur, gave me pre-algebra work and sat me in the back of the room for the rest of the year. Wow. Fast forward, by the time I'm in eighth grade, then I somehow <laughs> people were convinced. Um, so I was in algebra. I was in honors classes and that that set me on the course, right, to be on a different track. So by the time I got to high school, I was in AP courses, and I was one of two Latinas in the school that was very racially and ethnically diverse. We're talking about LA County here, um, but still within that, you know, it was very stratified by race um, within yeah. that. So, uh, long story short, it's um, it, it has been these moments of just seeing, wait a minute, something doesn't feel right, and you know, it's teachers who are advocating or me who is advocating or luck, frankly, right? It's like this system, it's, it's the few that are getting through. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what's happening. So, so Maria, a couple of, um, I did, a, I did an interview, one of the interviews that I did, uh, uh, and I haven't aired it yet, but my guest, he was a classmate of mine. And um, he said, he said he was doing a uh, he was applying for an internship while in college, and that they asked him how come he had gone to Stanford, but his brothers hadn't. And his brothers, I think he had two younger brothers, hadn't gone to college, weren't attending college. And he said that he responded. He said, "I guess I'm lucky." And he said he you know he didn't get the the internship, and he thought well, maybe I didn't. Maybe the answer they were expecting was, "Well, I worked really hard, and I did this and this and this." And he said, you know, sometimes we're lucky. Sometimes we have people that intervene in our lives, people that see potential in us, maybe more so than we do. And I love your story because I think a number of things happen, right? You said, you had, you said exactly, you advocated for yourself. You recognized when you weren't being allowed, right, the same opportunities as your classmates. But then you also still needed some of those adults to say, you, why aren't you in my pre-algebra class? Why aren't you right? And so recognizing that, you know, you could have sat quietly and done your work and been a dil diligent student, never questioning anything. And you, you wouldn't have maybe you wouldn't have had the opportunities that you've had. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate, you know, you taking us through and talking about, right, the people and then the actions that you took. Um, because I think sometimes we overlook that. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Maria, you're so you know you've, you're you're having some opportunities created for you. You know you're creating opportunities. People are helping you create those opportunities. But you also mentioned at the beginning that you're a first generation student. Yes. So, was college always part of your plan? As you were thinking about it, your sixth grade, seventh grade head. <laughs> um, I. I was thinking about college, um, and I think that I didn't know where. So where I lived, you know, my, my parents moved to the west side of L.A. Um, that's not where many of my relatives lived. Um, and we they rented an apartment. So, you know, three, then eventually four children. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment because my parents wanted us to go to, quote, to a good school. Right. So we know that where you live matters. And so um, living on the west side of L.A., schools are more resourced and funded. And so that's so we they made a decision that they weren't going to try to buy a more affordable house somewhere else, that they were going to rent, that we were going to be living in a smaller place, but that their kids were going to get a good education. Um, and so um, why do I say that? Um it just, yeah, I mean, for them, um, it, it's always been, you know, education has been, um, you know, so much the driving force, um, you know, in, in, 
you know, and they, you know, what I want to see for myself. So to your question, to your question about, you know, was college always in mind? I, the, the, the other thing is when I was, I, I don't think I thought too much about college. I just wanted to do well in school. I'll, I'll put it this way. I wanted to do well in school. I wanted my parents to be happy. I wanted to work hard. I knew that I wanted to be able to have a job where I have, didn't have to work like they did, right? They worked so hard, you know, a lot of physical labor. You could, they were tired. My dad would have to soak his feet when he got home. Um, my mom too was, you know, cleaning all day. So I, I knew that that they work really hard and that that wasn't the work that I wanted to do. And they told me that, right? They would say, um, you know, we want, we want better for you. And so, um, you know, so I, I wanted to do well in school. By the time I got to high school, um, you know, there were, there were programs and opportunities at UCLA. So UCLA was not too far. So I knew UCLA existed <laughs> and that became my dream school. So I was like, I, and of course, being the oldest and being a daughter I was like, I, I can commute, right? I, I would tell my parents, I want to go to college. I can still live at home and I can take the bus to UCLA. Um, so I knew that's where I wanted to go. Um, I think my parents, they wanted me to do well, but I, I don't know that they knew what pathways ex- existed for me. I think for them, it was like, okay, great. Graduate middle school. Awesome. Big celebration. Okay. Graduate high school, right? They never graduated high school. So for them, that was, that was a big deal. Um, so to go to college, I mean, I think that was beyond, you know, kind of their dreams. Um, you know, my, my mom has siblings who went to university in Mexico, but um, she was the oldest and she ended up sacrificing her own education to support them. So, um, you know, I think she she understood the value of that. And um, so, yeah, a long story short, it was um, definitely I knew like, I, I want to go to UCLA, but I didn't know what was out there until I started applying for colleges and, you know, getting letters and things like that. UCLA is not a bad dream school. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I, I ended up applying to UCLA. <laughs> and, as a, and as a first gen, again, as a first gen college student, what I didn't realize is that I, you know, in my in my financial aid form, I wrote down that I wanted that I plan to live at home. And so I, I said that I plan to live at home. So my financial aid package, even though it's a public university, was not very good. And so Stanford provided me a better financial aid package because I was moving away. So, you know, it's one of those like first gen mistakes. I, I shouldn't have said that I, <laughs> that I was going to live at home because they assumed that my parents were going to help me, yeah. um, which they couldn't. Right. So. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, be, before before we get to Stanford, though, you know, you you talk very openly about the people that helped you right in junior high. Um, as a first gen student, you know, I my parents my parents went to college. They neither one of them finished, but I remember when I was applying. You know, when when they applied, it was just a different process, right? And and even now now it's 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 crazy the the sort of the the machinery that it's become, right? But for you as a first-gen student, did you do that on your own? Or was there somebody or, or folks that helped you? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember feeling overwhelmed. And yeah. and had it not been for, for one particular person, I don't know that I would have applied where I did. Yeah. Were there any people like that in your life? Um. I think that was a situation where I really just learned from my peers. So by the time I was in high school, you know, I was on a track. I, I was taking all IP courses. I was classmates with children of chemists and doctors at UCLA and professors. And so they knew what to do. They knew that pathway. Um, and so um, so I think kind of two two pieces that really, you know, kind of helped me through that. One is it was a it was a challenging time because it was, you know, again, a very racially diverse school. And in our AP classes, it was it was just completely different. And so there was one other um, Latina student and myself um, who were friends and we supported each other through that and we shared resources with each other. But, you know, when you're in these, you know, being in that in those AP courses, there were two sets of, cor- you know, uh, 
classes students, you know, two, two classes that were going through the AP, all the AP curriculum in high school. So everyone was going through it together. So everybody knew that it was time to apply. Everybody was knew it was time to take the SATs. Everybody was knew it was, you know, so it was in the air. It was, everybody was talking about it. And I was like, oh, so now it's time to research colleges. Oh, okay. So now it's time, you know, to complete this, you know, so um, I ended up kind of being in a, in a, you know, unofficial cohort of students who were all like, it was expected. It was their plan to go to college. Um, My junior year, I got, uh, uh, there's a program in California called the Chicano Latino Youth Leadership uh, Project. And it's decades old now, but you spend a summer in Sacramento at Sacramento State you learn about the legislature, you learn about there, there are some like college going kinds of workshops and financial aid. And so I ended up doing that the summer before my senior year. And um, it was actually there where I met a, um, a college student from Stanford. They had a panel and she was there. Wow. Um, I love that. And so a lot of my guests, when they share their resources, when they talk about those opportunities, um, so that, you know, I've had folks talk about that. I've talked about folks have talked about like the Lorenzo de Savala, you know, and, and CHC, all kinds of different things. So I, um, I'll make sure to put a link in our, yeah. in this episode. So, you know, so folks, if it still exists, right. You, you said, I think it still does. Right. So that folks can, can, can learn more about it, but, but, you know, I love again, right? Those those experiences and those opportunities, and and just being at the right place and meeting this person. Mm-hmm. So you apply to UCLA, you apply to Stanford. Did you apply anywhere else? Uh, yes. So um, so I I had no plans to apply to Stanford. You know, once you take the SAT, you get all these invitations. You know, not invitations to apply. Well, to apply. Um, so that was the first time that I knew that there were Latinos at Stanford. So this was a Latina who was on this panel. Um, so I said, okay it's a good school. You know, I talked, I talked about it with classmates and they were like, Oh, that's a, that's a great school. So I was like, well, let me, let me apply there. Uh, I applied to UC Berkeley. Um, again, it was like still, I I applied to five schools. My peers applied to 10 at the time, at the time you applied the people who could afford all the college applications applied to 10, the people who couldn't apply to five. So (laughs) I applied to five and I thought very carefully about those five. Um, I only picked schools in California because I felt that I I didn't know if I felt ready to leave home. And if it was a California school, I can always tell my family, well, it's not that far. Uh, Still in California, right? You can drive there. Uh, So that, that's my criteria. That that was my fancy criteria, right? Not for, uh, for that. So I applied to UCLA. I applied to UC Berkeley. uh, um, Stanford. Um, I applied to Loyola Marymount university, which was a small school uh, that wasn't too far from my house. Hmm. And so it was like, okay, you know, I, I, that's a fine school. I can, you know, I can go there. I can commute. That was another school. I was like, I can commute. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, you know, every, every time I was getting these brochures, right. After taking the SATs and I was looking through everything, I learned about Claremont McKenna and Claremont McKenna is just a bit outside of LA. It's a small liberal arts, um, the Claremont Colleges. And so I was like, well, you know, it's a little far from L.A. I clearly can't commute there, but my parents can visit me and I can visit them. And it's a really great school. And maybe it's a smaller class size. Right. I, I, I somewhere I had read like you want to have variety. Right. So I applied to the big UC Berkeley. Right. The huge school. And then I was like, well, maybe this maybe I'm, you know, maybe a smaller environment is for me. And so um, I applied to those five schools and I got into all five schools. Wow. Um, so, so now you've yeah. got a decision to make, right? And mm-hmm. so here you are, first gen student, making, you know, deciding in some cases, I'm going to apply to these schools because they're close to home and I can commute. Right. What was the ultimate deciding factor for you? Um, I, you know, I, I think I've always been, um, 
and, and sometimes this is thought of as kind of a bad word, but I think I've, I've always had that ambition. Like I want to do well and I want to, I want to do the best and get into the best, right? I want the best. Um, I worked hard. My family worked hard. I want the best. And so when I thought about them and again, they're all amazing schools, but I was like, well, Stanford is the best school. <laughs> um, and my worry, my worry that they wouldn't be people like me there. Well, that was proven wrong, right? The summer before. So, and I, and I went up to her and I ended up getting to know her. I ended up seeing, by the time I ended up being a freshman at Stanford, she was a senior. So I did get to know her. And, um, and so I think I, I wanted to go to the best school. And then the next thing was financial aid, right? So as much as I loved UCLA, that wasn't going to work out because, you know, I was like, is there a way I could change my mind and say, I'm going to live on campus. So I get a better package. You know, that, that wasn't going to work. Um, UC Berkeley also decent financial aid, but not as, not as good as Stanford's. Um, and then Claremont McKenna, um, I think I, I need, I may be corrected, but I want to say, um, Loyola Marymount might've been a full, what might've been a full scholarship or it was very good. Um, So there were so many reasons for me to have said yes there. Um, And then Claremont McKenna's was comparable to Stanford's. So at the end of the day, it was that, and I uh, deliberated a lot. I think my parents were torn. I think they, when they told people that I got into Mm -hmm. Stanford and people, you know, other people knew when people she worked for knew and the look in their face, they, they realized, right, that it was a great yeah. school. And so yeah. I think by then it, um, they knew, they knew that that was la mejor, right? That that was the best school. Um, and I think they also felt torn because I was the oldest. They yeah. knew that they couldn't just fly <laughs> to visit me. They couldn't just, um, you know, my dad worked long days. They couldn't just fly me back. And so um, they were very clear that they supported whatever decision I made and that I also made that decision knowing that, um, that I was, you know, they could help me with what they could, but I was going to have to do it on my own, um, in terms of these other expenses and things, right. That, that tend to pop up. And so I waited until the last day, you know, you get the postcard where you commit. Yeah. I waited until the last day because I couldn't decide. Um, and I almost picked, you know, I said, well, maybe I'll just go ahead and go to, we'll figure it out and I'll go to UCLA because UCLA was, to me, was like the second best school. Um, and so I ended up, um, so I, it was the last day and it had to be postmarked my, by midnight. So my dad, so I, I finally decided and I told them and uh, I remember it was uh, crying, you know, um, but I knew I knew it was the right thing. So um, my dad ended up driving me to the post office by the, uh, by LAX, by the airport, because that one, it like closed at midnight. It was the one that went the longest. And so I could still get my, my, my card postmarked by the deadline to say yes. Wow. I waited till the very last day. <laughs> uh. I love that. Um, so you go to you go to Stanford. Yeah. Um, what was that transition like for you? Um, I guess I it, I'm. It was exciting and it was hard. It was like both feelings at the same time. So, one of the wonderful things is that um, my freshman year I was. Um, except my, my dorm was Casa Zapata. So it was the Chicano Mexican American theme house at Stanford. So it was amazing to go and see so many Chicano and Latino students. It was wonderful to see the resident fellows, um, Jose and Cecilia Bustiaga, um, you know, Tony, um, you know, just wonderful people. Uh, he an artist, she an amazing administrator and educator um, to be kind of my parents away from home. And, you know, my dad, he flew up with me and they said some wonderful things to him to kind of, you know, for him to feel like he could trust that I was going to be okay. And so I think when I think back, if there's any dorm or any place where I, where I feel like I, um, you know, I landed in a great place was there. So I think that was wonderful. Um, but it was still very hard. 
Um, it was, I wasn't, um, and even though I had, you know, having been in, you know, in very segregated classes in high school and being, you know, in white dominant spaces kind of all my life, you know, in different ways, it was still a bit of a shock. It was still a shock to see, to see the wealth, <laughs> to see the privilege, to see how everyone there was super smart. Um, so all the being, you know, being away from home. Um, so all those things were hard. And at the same time, I think um, it was, it was just, um, I think I started off in a great place that was very supportive. At any point, and I ask because, I don't know, I, 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 I certainly felt like this. At any point, did you doubt yourself? Did you doubt that you could, that you belong there and that you yes. could do it? <laughs> first semester. Uh, first semester, I was on academic probation. Wow. So here I had a 4.1 something GPA in high school. You know, I get into all these great schools. I get into Stanford. Um, I start selecting my requirements that fall quarter. And I'm like, well, I took calculus. I took AP calculus in high school. Let me take, let me not take the basic calculus. Let me take the calculus with all the pre-med students. I can do this. Um, you know, just being very self-reliant, you know, that kind of asking for help or tutoring or extensions, like, I just, I don't know where I got that or I internalized that, that that's a sign of weakness, right? You don't ask for help. You just kind of try to do it to show that you belong there. Um, so I did not do well in that math class the first semester. And so I was taking three courses. So at that time you could still withdraw a course <laughs> that first semester and not, <laughs> not get in trouble. You could just withdraw the course before you got a bad grade. Um, and so that set me to only have 10 out of the 12 units that I needed, right, for that first quarter. Um, and so I just remember being, you know, my advisor was one of the, the assistant deans of admissions, actually. <laughs> so she was a person who signed my acceptance letter, and I find myself in her office letting her know, you know, telling her what my plan is to make up that course. Um, so that was a huge low point. Um, and... Um, but, you know, thank goodness for second chances. You know, they, uh, I think the next quarter and the next quarter, I mean, I, I ended up doing well and that, you know, ups and downs, there were points where, you know, um, I wondered about that, but I think over time and being around students who just, you know, developing friendships where we just affirmed each other that we did belong there. We did belong there. And, and some of us, we didn't, you know, we didn't start on third base and, and we still, we still were achieving and we belong there. So, but the, the first, the first quarter was hard for sure. I, I, I imagine having the community like mm -hmm. Casa Zapata and mm -hmm. having, being around other Chicano Latinos, right? Where, mm -hmm. because I imagine you weren't the only one feeling that you weren't the only one that was, that was struggling a little bit. Right. And right. so to be able to confide in each other and lean on each other, I imagine that must've been really helpful. Yes. Yes, it was. I think to be able to share just our doubts and how torn, you know, you feel that, you know, many of us, we had responsibilities at home and we had siblings, you know, who were also, you know, who had taking up the responsibilities because we were away at college. Yeah. Right. Um, so so there was a lot of of ways that we, you know, support each other academically, socially, you know, studying together. Uh, doing fun things and then saying, okay, we got to go back to work. <laughs> we got to go back and study. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, obviously I, I, I totally agree. Right. I, I, um, I was very fortunate to have a similar, have a similar situation, struggle my first semester, but really relied on my community to, to kind of support me. Maria, you know, I work with so many 18, 19 year olds today and, and, so many of them feel like like they have to have life figured out. Mm -hmm. I've got to know what my major is. I've got to know what I'm going to be doing. I've got to know what I'm going to do 10 years from now. When you were a freshman, when you were just starting out at Stanford, what did you want to do? Oh, I had no idea. 
<laughs> I, I think I was just trying to put one foot in the other, in front of the other, right? And say, yeah. okay, I want to go to college. And um, and I think when I was looking at the brochures for colleges, I think that had opened my eyes. There were so many majors, you know, and I don't, I don't remember Stanford asked for you to declare a major or put something down, but it didn't, I don't remember it feeling that important. Yeah. Right. You just need to get in first and then figure out what you were going to do. Um, and to your point, you know, one of the first um, and I want, you know, when I got there, I wanted to soak everything in. And so there were panels and talks. And I do remember it was my freshman year. There was a talk at 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 our dorm where they had um, they had students and then they had professionals and they had faculty who were um, talking about, you know, picking your major and options and careers. But I do remember and I, I don't remember exactly who it was, but I the, the takeaway that I had from hearing that panel was exactly that, that you didn't have to have it all figured out, that a way that you could really take advantage of your first year. And again, we were in a quarter system, so we kind of had three different opportunities right in the year, not semesters, was to just take classes that you like. What are the things that you've been wanting to learn that you had that you don't know about, that you want to learn about? Um, and so I I don't know why I think I was like, well, Stanford is great and Stanford knows everything. And I just took that, like, even though people at home were like, well, what are you going to be? Are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be a business person? You know, there were all you know, questions about what are you going to college for? Right. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. I really took that advice. And I said, I'm going to take classes that I enjoy. And I think that was one of the first times, you know, you get that, you, you remember, you get the course catalog and there's so many courses, it's almost overwhelming. And I, one of the things that the, that conference that I shared that I went to the summer after my junior year is that I, I did not know about my history. I did not know about Chicano history. I didn't know about African-American history. I didn't, you know, there was so Native American history. There was so much that I didn't know. And there was a course, it might've been my freshman year. There was a history of Mexico course. I knew nothing, very little, very little about Mexican history, right? Where my heritage is, my family is. And I decided to take that course. And my freshman and my sophomore year, you know, sure, I took my, you know, core requirements. But um, actually, one of my first courses that I took my first year was Introduction to Chicano Life and Culture. Um, so that was a, a course that also just opened my mind and said, wow, like there is so much that I don't know. And, you know, before I knew it, there was a theme emerging from what I was taking. I love history. I love, um, you know, kind of the social sciences, understanding the connections between economic development and history and social development and education. And so by the time it was time to declare my major, I was like, well, this looks like I might be an international relations major. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to travel the world. I don't know if I'm going to be, people said, so are you going to be an ambassador? Where When I told people, no, are you going to be an ambassador? I don't know, but I love learning this. Yeah. So um, I just grabbed onto that maybe because I grabbed onto the ambiguity of that because I wanted to grab onto something, uh, right? Um, because I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and I had had such a difficult experience with math. You know, I think, who knows? I mean, I love astronomy. I love science. Um, but, you know, that was a path that I kind of ruled out early, for better or for worse, because I had such a, a hard, you know, challenging experience there. But um, I love the courses that I took. And it just, I went with you know, where my, my interest took me. I love that you said, you know, folks at home were asking you, right. Are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be, what are you going to do? I remember. Um, so when I was in, uh, I think concluding my sophomore year, I had decided and I told my dad, I was going to major in Chicano studies and uh, my parents, God bless them. They, they were always very supportive. And of mm -hmm. course they were like, great. You know, but of course, my father had to ask, can you get a job with that? <laughs> um, and I, I was I was so sure I was so confident, Maria, and I told him, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can do this and I can do this. But I think deep down, I, I had the same concerns. But I knew, I think like you, I really enjoyed learning about it. And I really loved the classes that I was taking and, and the professors. So... I totally understand and relate where you were coming from. Um, so you 
thrive at Stanford and you graduate from Stanford. And of course, just as people are asking you, what are you going to do when you're at Stanford? What are you going to do with that major? I'm sure people asked you, what are you going to do now? And what was next for you? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think by then I knew that I wanted to do something that was social justice oriented. <laughs> I mean, just something in that, right? Um, and I, I just really held on, you know, the saying, um, think globally, act locally, right? You know, because folks were saying, well, why are you studying? Why are you, you know, studying about India? Why are you studying about France? Like, why are you, you know, why are you learning about all these countries? Um, and, and part of it is because um, I was just, I was able to learn, you know, so much about the world and that the world is bigger than the U.S., <laughs> uh, really, and that, I live in the U.S. and I, there's a lot of inequities that that I see that I wanted to address and I wanted to do something about. Um, so I got involved in you know activities on campus that really tried to address social justice issues, and that was also became my community of friends and you know where I felt like I have an opportunity that I'm in a place of such privilege that there are things that I can be doing while I'm here. Um, how do we open that? that path and those doors for the students who are going to come after us. Because even then at that time, there were still very few, you know, very few Chicanos and Latinos on campus. And so I got involved in that. And so I knew that I wanted to do something social justice oriented. And the most concrete area that came to me was education. So by the time I was a senior, I applied to teacher education programs and, um, I still wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to do something in education. And as we've had this whole conversation, you see how pivotal right education has been in my life and and how can we, you know, how can we change systems? I knew, but you know, a little bit more about systems change by then. You know, it's it shouldn't have to be luck. How do we really change the systems that that students are going through in our in you know in our educational system? So I knew I wanted to do something there. I didn't know if I wanted to teach, but I applied to to teaching programs. Um, and then there was a career fair. So here's a, there was a career fair for education. I think it was like graduate programs, maybe it was more broad. Um, and I see a woman, um, Latina, standing under a, uh, a tent for the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And so I, so I go and I ask questions about the teaching program. That one, I think, is like 18 months or two years. I don't remember how long it is. So I ask about that, and um, she's an alum. And she, and she tells me that there's different programs. There's one that's more, you know, you don't have to go into teaching if you want to go education. You can learn about sociology of education. So she describes that there's so much, of, you know, to working in education and teaching that you can focus on. So, um, and her, um, her name is Frances Contreras. And um, so I met her. She gave me her card. She's, I don't even know how much time we spent there. Um, <laughs> and by the time I left the career fair, I was like, I'm going to apply to the Harvard Graduate School of Education to their master's program. <laughs> and I don't know if after I graduate, I'll ever have a chance. You know, life happens. I, you yeah. know, you, we know, right, how you know, because of money or whatever, what might happen, I might never go back and get a graduate degree. So I decided to go ahead and apply right away. Um, and so applied to those programs and got into Harvard. And, you know, part of it a little bit for me, maybe still felt a little bit like an imposter, right? Because when I, when I got in to Stanford in high school, there were three of us in our school who got in. Um, and, the two other students who got in were never told by their peers that they got in because of affirmative action. And those were things that were said about me. Yeah. Um, so I kind of carried that into college. And so I was like, well, if I get into Harvard, then it wasn't a fluke. Then <laughs> <Right? laughs> I do, I do belong here and I do belong there. And so, um, and again, I had never, you know, I, I shared, I only applied to California schools for college. And so this was an opportunity to, really just take a leap and try something different. Every few years or so, I do things like this. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to leave home and, you know, okay, I'm going to leave California. And um, so that's how I ended up in, at Harvard for my master's. Um, 
I had another conversation with somebody recently about imposter syndrome, and and I was talking about how I felt it right at Stanford and and, and other guests, not at Stanford, but even at other institutions. I had I had one guest who um, is a judge now, and she said she went to UT Law and that she always felt like she said she still feels like they're going to show up at her door and take her law degree away. Um, and so I, I think it's interesting that right here you are, you're getting ready to graduate, mm-hmm. earning a degree from one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And there is still that little bit of, you know, uncertainty, right? Of just that questioning, right? Well, you know, let me see if I can get into Harvard and th- then I'll know right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you, so let me ask you, you, you get into Harvard, did that doubt go away? Did that question go away for you? Um, I think it, I mean, I think it did. Um, I think there, there was a, a small but mighty Latino community too, where I was like, oh, y'all are here too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great. And got to me, you know, and because even the, the school of ed was small. So there was, you know, a community with folks from the Kennedy School of Government, from the medical school, um, you know, and so, you know, folks were able to get together and support each other, got to meet undergraduates, right, who were out in the cold for four years there. Um, so um, I, I, I think it did. And I think over time, I, you know, I still I still grapple a little bit with the imposter syndrome thing, because so much I feel like I've I put on myself that that this is something I felt and it's something that like I created. Um, and so I think you know, now I'm trying to give myself a little more grace when I think about having had those experiences. And sometimes where I feel like, you know, oh, I don't, I don't know how I feel in this space is that, you know, when you're, when you've grown up all your life, getting messages that you're not good enough. I mean, it's not going to like flip on a dime, right. To as, as, as confident you becoming yourself and you know that you're great and you know that you're, that you're deserving and you're deserving because you're human and you're, you know, um, you know, all those things, um, they're, they're, we're, we're swimming, we're swimming in, in messages and structures that don't always recognize us and recognize our humanity. So when we enter into those spaces, like it's hard for me not to think that that, that realization like comes up again and say, Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I get real, really comfortable, I'm like, oh, that's right. You know, there's still many spaces where we weren't meant to be in those spaces. And so now, you know, here we are again, trying to figure out how to make a new space, how to challenge that space. And so um, I think, you know, every once in a while, I, I, I'm starting to think more about, yes, I may be feeling a certain way about it, but it isn't like a fault or a deficit of me. It's yeah. like, this is what I'm walking into, right? And so how do I, how am I going to show up? How am I going to show up in that space? Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, things, you know, if you creep up, you, you're in a space where people that you've never known before and people have titles and you kind of need to remind yourself why you're there, right? And, and, and all that. Or people don't look like you. Yes. Right? <laughs> you walk into the room and you're like, oh. <laughs> so, Maria, I want to be mindful of time because sure. I know I know you've, 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 yeah. you don't, you, um, but, you know, you go to Stanford, you go to, to Harvard um, for your master's degree. And, and really, um, I want to fast forward a little bit because I think, tell us about since, since, you know, since leaving Harvard, Mm-hmm. I think you've you've had, you know, multiple positions, different jobs, right? But we talked about before we started recording the podcast about sort of these themes. Your jobs have made sense. Tell us about that theme. As you reflect yeah. back on the work that you've done, what connects it all? Yeah. I would my um kind of my boilerplate answer usually tends to be you know, there's, there's an education theme to everything that I've done. And I, and I think that's true, right? It goes back to the story I shared with you today about, you know, how important that is for me and I ha- how I want the conditions to be different for students 
you know, and for, for people, for right, all students who came after me and who are coming after me. Um, I think if, if you look at kind of the things that I've done, I would say, well, leadership development is a thread. So I work with young people. I work with educators, teachers, administrators, nonprofit leaders. So, you know, those are kind of um, what I tend to share about the themes in that. Um, but when I, when I think a little bit harder and we were, you know, having a conversation about is that, uh, you know, and it, and it goes back to one, one of my first jobs where we met um, after I got my master's um, is doing youth development work. And so much when we do youth development, you know, because there's so many, you know, deficit-based language that we have about young people and young people are trouble and they were pre-delinquent and they don't know what they're doing. And, um, and we talk about youth development is how, how do we how do we support young people and how do we see young people from an asset-based perspective? And I, I think that that's what, that's been a, what gravitated me to one of my, you know, one of my first roles early in my career, but, um, and also why, you know, where my career paths have taken me is that I think through all the work that I've done, I've, I want to help people see themselves for all, for the wonderful people that they are, right. For the, for the humanity, um, the humans that they are for what they bring for them to be able to tap into the great things about him, them, their strengths, to be able to see maybe places where they want to grow and learn and then think about, okay, how do you make that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that they can, that they can have agency, that they can do the things that they want to do, that they can, you know, make the dreams that they have a reality, that the changes that they want to see that they do something with. Right. So at its core, I mean, that's also leadership development. So, you know, most of my work, I've kind of, I see myself as kind of the backseat, you know, backseat supporter, like (laughs) I'm the cheerleader, like I'm there to, you know, I do coaching. Um, That's, you know, some of the other things that I've done before is, um, and, and it, and it comes from, you know, in, in talking with you is, um, you know, living into our own power and an ability to advocate for ourselves and other people. Um, because we, you know, I think many of us, if not all of us, you know, we want to be seen or heard or listened to or supported or be recognized as, as humans, right. With, with life and with purpose. And so, um, I think in everything that I've done is just thinking about, you know, how do we, um, how do we live into those kinds of, of things, you know, and, and futures that we want to see. So whether it's working with young people or teachers, how do you realize, like, what is it that you want to do? What do you want to, you know, what do you want to be different? And then what do you need? What do you already have to make that happen? So after all that you said, Maria, here's what I heard. Mm-hmm. I heard that you want to give people the same kind of voice and the same kind of power that you had as a third grader, right? To, to advocate for yourself and to speak up and to claim that space, right? So you, for you as a third grader, you recognized you were missing out. You recognized that you were missing opportunity and you recognized that you deserve better. And so now here you are, <laughs> you've come full circle, right? Um, <laughs> And now you're able to do that for other people, you're, you know, and, and you know, because I think sometimes we take for granted, one, it, it, it is extraordinary that you as a third grader could do that, that, that you saw within yourself that you had the power to do that and you had enough agency to do that. But there are people, there are adults who don't feel like they can do that and who don't know how to do that. And so for you to do that work, I think that's just phenomenal, right? To think that you're, you're absolutely right. There has been this thread, this theme that has connected everything that you do. Um, so congratulations. This is exciting. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I, you know, and I go back and I think I had good models and I had good models in my parents. Um, yeah. Cause nothing like, you know, my, they gave up everything, right? When I think yeah. about it as an adult and now as a parent, you know, what would you not do for your children? Right. So, um, so I think I had good, good models to, um, you know, to look up to. Thank you. Maria, any final words 
before we close? Oh, no. Well, I mean, thank you for this opportunity. Um, this was such a gift. I, I, uh, uh, it's, it's been good for me to kind of reflect back and think about my journey. And um, I'm in a point right now when I'm exploring what's next in my journey. So I would say, you know, whatever age you are, wherever you feel, whether you feel you have a path and, you know, you, you have a plan, you know, go for it. Um, if you feel that you maybe aren't sure where that path is, it's okay. Um, things, things unfold themselves and reveal to you as you go. And sometimes unexpected things happen and shift things in a, in a different direction. And so, um, you know, be, be kind to yourself, um, because there is no right way. Um, and, and you'll, you'll know, you'll know, as you, as you go through that and you cross that. I love that. I'm going to put that in a book somewhere. There's no right way. <laughs> That's uh, beautiful. That is beautiful. Maria, thank you for your time. Thank Me you for too. your time. Thank you for your story, um, because I know that's not always easy to share. So thank you. Um, this concludes another episode of the Way to College podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our our guest. And uh, don't forget to listen, follow, rate, subscribe, all of that good stuff. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. and Bye bye.